The name of this uh, sermon is Open Hearts, Open Minds. I'm on a a C.S. Lewis kick, so I'm reading a few things. I think I have shared some of that with you in my uh, recent sermons, at least once or twice. It's always good to reread someone. And I read a work that I've never read before, though. It's entitled, Till We Have Faces. Till We Have Faces may not be C.S. Lewis' most familiar work. But it may be his best, and for some, it may be the most difficult reading that you will be called on to read, if you are called. Till We Have Faces is a reworking of the classical myth of Cupid and Psyche. The central character, though, is neither Cupid nor Psyche. Rather, it is Oruel. Psyche's embittered and ugly older sister. Without giving the read away, it is an account of Orul's journey from self-deception to self-awareness. Self-deception, I believe, to be a fundamental problem of human existence. I want you to hear me carefully about this. Self-deception. And when I say it is a fundamental characteristic of the human existence or condition, I mean every one of us are subject to it. And so if that is the case, that uh, seems to be what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. I want you to hear his words, both in Romans and 2 Timothy, concerning self-deception and deception in general. He says in that first chapter, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator. And in 2 Timothy, we find this. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I will go so far as to aver that deception, self-deception included, is at the heart of the human condition. It certainly was a very strong, if not the dominant dynamic in the garden with Adam and Eve and Satan, wasn't it? Now the question is this, is it ever really possible in this world to see and judge things and, well, life the way things are and life is. Think about that for a moment. Is it ever really possible to judge things rightly in this life, to see things the way they really are? And before you answer, be careful. The Apostle Paul says, even as a redeemed apostle of the Lord, we look through a glass darkly. We look through a glass darkly. We do not yet see in heaven's light entirely. We do not stand in the new Jerusalem 
We're on this side of the great divide. And therefore, we must, if you will, and let me caution all of us, to be careful in our judgments and our assessments. We only see parts and bits of things. We never really see the whole. But I also, in this sermon, want you to see that in this life, the binders, the blinders, the, the uh, things that you put on horses, they're removed in Christ. The curtain is pulled back, if you will, and we get a greater and deeper glimpse and experience of the way things are. And I'm going on to add that I believe this is unique to the experience of the Christian. I do believe that we see differently because we see better in some things. How then are we to be freed from the dynamic of deceiving and being deceived? It's all around us. We, we deceive ourselves because we want to. We want to see things in a certain light. We are not really as open as we think we are. We also, at times, deceive others. Even Christians will be deceptive. Now, you can anticipate my answer to this. It takes the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to open our eyes for us to begin to hold and to behold those things that we live around and in in this world. It takes the grace of God to set us free from false and delusional thinking. It takes a movement of God upon our hearts to awaken us to what is real and what is unreal, to what is good and beautiful and true. It takes a divine intervention to break into our delusional thinking. Our text provides us a wonderful illustration of how God does this, how God moves in a heart, how God, if you will, removes the scales from our eyes. And we find this in the writings of the Apostle Paul. We find it in Acts chapter 16 and in verses 9 through 15, which is the text. And so what we find here is what Francis Schaeffer calls a revelation from, if you will, delusion and falsehood to what he called True truth. Chapter 16, then, verses 9 through 11. Let me read them again for you and read them because it's the text here. Here. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him. You see, Paul was going to go in a different direction, but the Spirit of Jesus stopped him. And then he has this vision. He's still, if you will, technically on the continent of Asia. There is little difference between this side of the Bosporus and the other side. It was all of the Greek world. Nonetheless, a man from Macedonia standing and begging him in a night vision, come over to Macedonia and help us. And Paul had seen the vision. We got ready at once to leave. And by the way, the we here in the text indicates that Luke has now joined Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 
There are four of them. We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea, sailed straight to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now, that's the setting. Here really is the text. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find, I, 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 I think that's amazing, we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyra or Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. And here is the heart of the text. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said... Come and stay at my house. And she persuaded them. Now let's look at the woman Lydia. A dealer in purple cloth. We should take a look at her briefly in her circumstances. We only have her mentioned in the New Testament in Acts chapter 16 in two places. But we can gather a lot about her from these brief mentions. Well... Who was she really? Some commentators will say she was a freed servant. Others will claim that she was a prominent woman of considerable means. I think the text tells us the kind of woman she was and the background that she had. She was a seller of purple. Now, it is true that the slaves in Lydia... That's where she is from. It's not only her name. The servants took some dyes from the botanical realm of plants and so forth and dyed the wool. And that particular wool dyeing process was not very expensive. There was another way that you dye wool, and that was that you collected mollusks from the sea and you got a purple dye that was to die for, if you will. And from that, the cloth would be stained or dyed. This was an expensive process. I think she was the latter because it's clear that she was a woman of means. She had a household and servants. So if you ask me whether to decide was she kind of a servant set free or was she some kind of businesswoman who had gained a great deal from her business expertise and had, was quite wealthy, I would say the latter. 
You see, she had a big enough home to invite at least these four, and no doubt some others now, back to her home. More about that in a moment. She then had house and servants. Obviously, she was a very confident and engaging woman. Otherwise, she would not have had the presence, if you will, to invite menfolk back to her home in her day. Was her name really Lydia? We may not know her name. The word in Greek doubles for both a place and a person. But I think her name probably was Lydia. Her name, Lydia. We know something else about this text from her. If you read carefully this text, that's what some scholars call a very close reading, you will discover that she had already come to the conclusion that the true God was the God of Israel. She was a God-fearer, a Gentile. Was she? I don't know. Was she a Jewess? I'm leaning in that direction. You say, why? Well, apparently in Philippi, there were not enough Jewish men to form what is called a minion. A quorum. You see, we need one for the congregational meeting, so remember that. You can't do business without it. They didn't have an official synagogue. And so what you do when you don't have an official synagogue of, of men, ten men, that's a quorum. These ladies, Lydia among them, went down by the riverside and organized a synagogue along the river. They had, in Greek, what is called a gathering together meeting. And that's what the word synagogue means. Now, that, that shows a great deal about her already, doesn't it? In the absence of a minion, she takes the lead at least to have prayers. And Paul expected that. I don't know why. But he went down by the riverside. And there he met with them, and since he was a rabbi, he was given prominence, and they no doubt invited him to speak. And all of them, all four, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke began to speak. And then Paul finally ended up, I, I see it as breakout session and getting back together, and he concluded with the preaching of the gospel. And I want you to notice what happened to this lady. She was not far from the kingdom. Many are, but she was not. But she was not yet, if you will. She was not yet a Christian. She had not yet opened her heart up to those things and to the working of God in a real way. Now notice, Paul preaches the gospel. That's called in the Westminster Confession, the external call. You are an instrument of the external call when you go and proclaim the good news of Christ, when you share with a friend. You share with them the gospel of Christ. And the scripture says, after they sat down and began to speak, Paul and his companions, after they had joined the service, this, by the way, is Paul's second missionary journey. Lydia evidently was listening intently. She was no passive 
listener. You have to, if you really want to listen, listen actively. You have to work at it. You have to concentrate. One of the difficulties today that we are pretty much so shallow and so bereft of real time to hear that we can't hear because of the hustle and bustle of life. You know, our parents and grandparents were used to taking their quiet times to be alone and to pray and to listen. They would take out their bulletin insert and pray. And there would be a concert of prayer going up. But they also were listening. They would read the scriptures. Listening. And while listening to the Lord, verse 14b says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It is not enough to hear externally with the ears and even in some sense to understand. Something supernatural must take place if one is really to cross the threshold into Christianity and it is called the opening of the heart and you can't do it. Only God's Spirit can do it. The Spirit of God opened her heart and she heard and put together the gospel for the first time in a real way. To that point, she was close. She was a seeker. She had enough moxie and drive to organize, apparently, the synagogue meeting. She's like the Methodist women that I knew who grew up when the men didn't attend church, they still kept it open. You know, whatever it takes, the gospel must go forward. And here she was. She understood the praise of God, but she didn't quite understand who Jesus was and what it was all about. There's a self-revelation taking place here. She is, if you will, coming out of that last bit of deception that holds us back and into the glorious light of Christ. Just as the Lord had opened Paul's eyes and scales fell from his eyes, now Lydia's eyes, or heart, is open. This is sovereign grace. I hope you understand how important it is to believe in God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign grace can conquer the resistance of the human heart. God's sovereign grace will not be stopped in this world. The gospel of Jesus Christ will go forth. The gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately and finally will be triumphant. It is the truth. It is reality. It is the way things are structured. Every act of receiving Christ is an act of God's sovereign grace that we might behold our interest in Christ. Now, there was a reorientation of her life right away. Now, in this synagogue, obviously, it was not a traditional synagogue. The men and the women mingled with each other. I suppose if they had a building... And the men were in charge. The women would be over here, the men over here, and they would set separately. That was the custom. But in this case, it was down by the riverside. And apparently there were no men there until Paul and his companions arrived. 
And they kind of took over and preached the gospel to them. But I want you to notice it changed her life. Her opened heart opened up her mind to many vistas immediately. Now notice what I've said, open heart to open mind. Most people would just reverse that, open mind to open heart. In fact, I I was tempted to name this sermon, Open Mind, Open Heart, but Scripture says God opened her heart. And apparently you could say, if you will, God opens her heart some more, she opens her house. But I think he opened her mind that she might understand the role she could play in the apostolic ministry. And there's a great truth here in an open heart to an open mind. Both St. Augustine and St. Anselm, one lived in the 4th century and the other lived in the 11th century, and they both had the motto or understanding. And St. Augustine put it in a prayer. I believe in order that I might understand. The heart comes first. What is interesting in, in, in the field of philosophy, David Hume reverses this long rationalistic tendency in some ways by saying that we make most of our decisions out of our hearts, our affections, not our heads. Notice how many of your decisions are made out of your affections. God opens our heart. The seat, if you will, of her very being and personality and affections. And she begins to behold things in a new way. I believe in order that I might understand. Now, I'm saying that this process is absolutely essential to be rooted in reality. For the first time in her life, she was deeply rooted in the reality of God in Christ. When I say reality, understand what I mean. I'm saying that this is the way things are, the way God made it. God has made us for himself. And I pray with Augustine that our hearts will find no rest until they find their rest in him. There's nothing in the world that can fill your heart or fill that place. The riches of this world and the passions of this world cannot take the place of God. God has made you uniquely for himself. C.S. Lewis in one of his works says that right and wrong is the key to the universe. And for the first time, I believe that she began to understand what is right and what is wrong. She knew the apostle or the apostolic mission under Paul was right. Open up our house. You know, culturally, we are a mess today, aren't we? We have lost our way. There is a, a sadness in our our national life. Almost all of you, I'm going to categorize as middle class. And you know who attends church in our country? People like you. The lower classes, if we want to use those terms, and I will for the sake, I don't even like to talk about class. There is no bond or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile in Christ. But let's, for the sake of understanding, talk about class. Our lower classes have been lost to the church. Most people who meet in church look just like you. Middle class, 
I'm not talking racially here. I'm talking about experience. We have lost our elites. Our elites are leading our culture and they're leading our culture to hell. They're living in non-reality. We can't even get the Washington Post and the New York Times to cover what is taking place in Philadelphia. We have a mingala down there butchering babies. Let one person going to an abortion clinic be tripped up by a pro-life person in its national news. And we'd have down there the slaughter of the innocents. And our national media cannot find it to be a story of interest. God help us. Now, why did we come to this state? Well, remember the fundamental problem, in in my opinion, in addition to pride, we find in the garden, is self-deception and deception. We want to deceive ourselves. We want to live in unreality. We don't want our eyes opened. But God's, who is persistent in his love, praise be to his sovereign grace, opens our eyes up to truth and we behold wondrous things and we know what is right and what is wrong and things are not simply in the gray anymore. Open heart, open mind. She opened up her house. She was baptized. Her whole house was baptized. I wonder if there were any infants in that uh, household. Well, maybe not in hers, but maybe in the Philippian jailers where there's also a household baptism in chapter 16. Two of them. I think she understood the covenant in relation to her children and to those of her household. What a marvelous thing. She's understanding in a different way. She's entered into a different room and beholding the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Her eyes have been opened. Her ears have been unstopped. Her taste is more acute. Her smell. She can smell the roses. Another philosopher, I'll mention one. I've mentioned him before, Heraclitus. Now, Heraclitus was a pre-Socratic philosopher, and I've read everything he's written. (laughs) About 100, I think, 39 fragments. I've got a book at home. You can whip through them in 20 minutes. Everything that he's ever written. But scholars pour over every one of those sayings and try to figure out what he means. Now, he was enigmatic, difficult to understand. But one of those in there I love, and I think I might have some insight in it. One of them says, and this is translated this way by, by me, I accept this translation. Others translate it a different way, but he says, nature loves to hide itself. Notice how hard it is to figure out what reality is in the physical realm. This pulpit, if you could see it, at the deepest level we know to see things, it is a swarming mass of electrons and it's moving. It took an awful lot of human effort 
by the grace of God to get to that understanding, didn't it? We can see and understand things on the microscopic level. And we understand that in the universe, the vastness of it, we're beginning to understand that it is so absolutely vast and amazing that we're just beginning to understand. Someone has said we stand about right in the middle between the largest thing and the smallest thing. That's where we live. And we see about this much, whereas God has made this much. Nature loves to hide itself. You have to study and wring out of it knowledge like a hurricane, medicine, whatever. How true that is when it comes to spiritual reality. But spiritual truth is beyond us. Nature, not so much, maybe ultimately, but we can, we can get there a bit. But if I understand the scriptures, it takes a divine intervention for you to be opened up to final and ultimate truth and who Jesus is and what the gospel means. You have now been equipped through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only to live in this world, but did you hear the reading from the book of Revelation? Through this gospel and this opening up of your heart, you have been enabled finally and fully and freely to be able to live, equipped to live in the new Jerusalem and the new heaven. Won't that be amazing how much we will be able to see and comprehend? We'll look back on this and surely see shadows, little glimmering of things. And we will look back and we will say with T.S. Eliot's, we took the shadow for the reality. How much greater it is. And how much has been opened to us by the simple sovereign grace of God opening the human heart. I pray that all of you know Christ. And if you feel him knocking and tugging at your heart's door, that you will look unto Jesus and be ye saved. Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Fling wide the gate and invite the Savior in, who alone can truly enable you to do that. Praise be to God. Amen.